I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Deresh Chai Experiment, episode 120. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment. The show where we compare the themes that exist in the text of scripture to discover just what lies underneath. So the the ten words, commonly known as the Ten Commandments, found in chapter 5, they act as an index for the legal portions of the book of Deuteronomy, which is chapters 6 through 25 of this book. And they expand these ten words in order, extrapolating the ideas that are contained in each of the ten, providing concrete examples of how we can then implement these commands in our own lives as we enter into the process of extrapolation for ourselves. For the last few weeks, we've been in the part of Deuteronomy that expands on just the first of the ten words. The first six chapters of this extrapolation focuses on the singular idea from which all of the other commands or words flow. And that is Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 7. And that is Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am Hashem your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What all does this word entail and how can we begin to apply it to our lives? Well, that is what these six chapters of Deuteronomy address. But when we opened up and began to examine the ideas that are contained in these six chapters, we discovered something profoundly foundational. These six chapters describe for us a proto or an initial gospel message. A message of the kingdom of God coming to earth. A kingdom with a king, a law, a land, and a people. The four things that are required for a kingdom to exist. And as we dug deeper, we have discovered that several foundational ideas of the gospel and salvation that are spoken of in the New Testament all find their origin here in this expansion of the very first of the ten. First, we saw the idea of faith reflected in chapters 6 and 7. Not the faith of mental assent to a series of facts. Not the faith of belief without proof to a proposition. Not the faith of remaining true to an idea. Rather, the faith that is revealed here in the pages of Deuteronomy is the faith of allegiance to a king. Not just some nebulous series of ideas or facts. Rather, Allegiance to the very real king of all creation. The allegiance that the New Testament speaks of when it describes the faith that saves. One of the most foundational ideas of salvation, for as Paul says, we are saved through faith alone. Then as we move into chapter 8, we saw that another foundational gospel topic is addressed. And this is the topic of grace. It's an idea that is not simply limited to a gift that is given unconditionally and without any strings attached. Rather, it contains the idea of a gift given to a client by a patron, and a relationship of give and take being initiated between two parties, 
a relationship that in the ancient world had a whole host of rules governing how each party was to act in that relationship. The patron looking at the gift as just that, a gift to a person in need, given for the sake of the client and to improve all of society in general. But the client then had an expectation placed upon him as well. The expectation that he would do all that he could to increase the honor and the power base of his patron. Speaking of the gift of the patron to all who would listen, telling of the grace that he had bestowed and how that gift of grace had improved his life in every way, seeking out others who the patron could then bless in this same way, and always looking for a way to repay the gift through an act of service to the patron. And with this relationship then comes a whole host of terms that help to describe various roles within this relationship, words like mediator, gift, and friend. And the idea of grace then takes on a whole new meaning, not a gift given without expectation or undeserved, but a gift given as the means of initiating a relationship. Each member of the relationship having a role to play, not just for the betterment of the other, but for the betterment of all mankind. Then in chapter 9 through the beginning of chapter 10, the topic of justification and righteousness was brought forth. Just how a person or a community is made right before God. And as we explored this idea from one end of scripture to the other, we found that justification is not something that is earned or that can be achieved through any human act. Justification is the gift that is given by grace from the patron who has it to those who cannot attain it on their own. Righteousness and justification are not things that we can earn under our own power. But once again, we discovered as we dug into this topic, simply because we cannot be justified before God based on our own righteousness does not mean that we should or cannot do works of righteousness. Because the gift of justification is given in order to produce works of righteousness in those who have received it. Not to earn any further justification, but rather than to walk out the justification that we have been granted. So far we've seen three major ideas of salvation. Faith, grace, and justification, or righteousness. And this week we finish off the expansion of this first word, and as we do, we discover one last gospel ideal highlighted. One that Paul calls the greatest, greater than faith, greater even than the hope of the promise that we have. The greatest of these is love, the ultimate foundation of the gospel, the thing that should be the ultimate foundation of our relationship with God and with others. So let's go ahead and read this Parsha, and then let's discuss this greatest of topics, love. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through eleven twenty five. And now, Yisrael, what is Hashem your Elohim asking of you, but to fear Hashem your Elohim, to walk in all his ways and to love him, and to serve Hashem your Elohim with all your heart and with all your being, to guard the commands of Hashem, and his laws, which I command you today for your good. See, the heavens and the heavens of the heavens belong to Hashem your Elohim, also the earth with all that is in it. Hashem delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, you above all peoples, as it is today. And you shall circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and harden your neck no more. 
For Hashem your Elohim is Elohim of Elohims, and Master of Masters, the Great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the stranger, giving him food and a garment. And you shall love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Fear Hashem your God, serve him, cling to him, and swear by his name. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome deeds which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with seventy beings, and now Hashem your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And you shall love Hashem your God and guard his charge, even his laws and his judgments and his commands always. And you shall know today, for it is not your children who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of Hashem your Elohim, his greatness, his strong hand and his outstretched arm, and his signs and his works which he had done in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and that which he had done to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, when he made the waters of the Sea of Reeds overflow them as they pursued you, and how Hashem has destroyed them to this day, and what he has done for you in the wilderness till you came to this place, and what he had done to Datan and Avaram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuven, when the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and their tents, and all the living creatures that were in the possession in the midst of Israel. For yours are the eyes that saw all the great work of Hashem which he did, and you shall guard every command which I command you today, so that you are strong and shall go in and possess the land which you are passing over to possess, and to prolong your days in the land which Hashem swore to give your fathers, to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you are going in to possess is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you are passing over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of the heavens, a land which Hashem your Elohim looks after. The eyes of Hashem your Elohim are always on it, from the beginning of the year to the latter end of the year. And it shall be that if you diligently obey my commands, which I command you today, to love Hashem your Elohim, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your being, then I shall give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain. And you shall gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And I shall give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Guard yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside to serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the displeasure of Hashem shall burn against you, and he shall shut up the heavens, and there shall be no rain, and the land not give its increase, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which Hashem is giving you. And you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children are increased on the soil which Hashem swore to your fathers to give them, as the days of the heavens and the earth. For if you diligently guard all these commands which I command you to do, to love Hashem your Elohim, to walk in all his ways, and to cling to him, then Hashem shall drive out all these nations before you, and you shall dispossess greater and stronger nations than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads is yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, is your border. No man shall stand against you. Hashem your Elohim shall put the dread of you and the fear of you upon the land where you tread, as he has spoken to you. 
1 Corinthians 13, 1-13 If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all secrets and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing at all. And if I give out of all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, but do not have love, I am not profited at all. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not puffed up. It does not behave indecently. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It reckons not the evil. Does not rejoice over unrighteousness but rejoices in truth. It covers all, believes all, hopes all, and endures all. Love never fails, and when there be prophecies, they shall become inactive. Or tongues, they shall cease. Or knowledge, it shall become inactive. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, then that which is in part shall become inactive. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child, but when I became a man, I did away with childish matters. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know as I also have been known. And now faith, hope, and love remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is one of those words that gets bandied about, and once again, as with faith and grace, it's taken on a whole new realm of meaning in the modern age. For the culture at large, love is associated with passion. It's a feeling of desire, that longing in the pit of your stomach that you feel when you have a connection to another person. Love for modern West has become completely based in our emotional state. And once again, the Disney ideal that's taken over our culture states that our emotions are the true reality. The things you feel should determine your actions. What does your heart tell you, being the rallying cry of multitudes of emotionally based mobs? Because your heart will tell you the truth, and your truth is the only truth that matters, even if it conflicts with the truth of another. And this basis has become the modern ideal of love. Nothing more than an emotional attachment associated with passion for something or someone. You can love a person, a pet, or a slice of cake. Love is all about desire. And for us, love is based primarily in lust. And so we have millions of people who go through the process of divorce because they lose that feeling of passion for their partner. They don't feel love anymore, and so they call it quits. But one thing you should learn as you mature, especially if you're able to disconnect from this culture, is that your emotions will and do lie to you. I cannot name the number of times that I have felt an emotion based on incomplete information. Several years back, my wife and I, we separated for a time. Uh, the reason for the separation is not pertinent to this story. Uh, fortunately, we were able to get through this rough time, and we had to begin to rebuild our relationship. I can tell you that at the time, there was very little passion 
in our relationship, but we persisted. When we got back together, we began to learn new tools to assist us in conflict resolution. Because, as will always happen when in a relationship with another, conflict will arise. One particular occurrence of this after we had mended our relationship and we were in the beginning stages of learning a new way of responding, it occurred out of the blue. She was on the phone with one of her friends and she had a question for me that was pertinent to her conversation. So my wife called me into the room that she was in and asked me her question. Well, I didn't know the answer, so I said, I'll be back, and I stepped out of the room to find the answer to her question. When I returned, as I walked back into the room, all I heard from her was, well, I didn't want to talk to you anyway. And it was on. I was angry. Didn't she know that I'd left to help her? I told her to wait a minute when I walked out, and this is how she responds to my help? I didn't have to go find the answer for her. How ungrateful was she? And fury welled up into me, and so I stormed away to fume over what had just happened until I could cool down. Progress, at least. I I didn't yell at her and descend into an argument. But there may have been a slammed door in the process. And within a minute, she was chasing me down with confusion just written all over her. She could not understand why I had just stormed out like that because she had the rest of the story. You see, while I was out of the room, her friend had put down her own phone for a moment. And while her phone was sitting there, her young toddler had picked up the phone and begun talking to my wife. But then in the middle of this, the kid just simply put the phone down and walked away. And my wife responded to her with, well, I didn't want to talk to you anyway, just as I walked back into the room. The anger that I felt was a lie. It was based on a lie that I was telling myself about what my wife thought of me. This anger was so real, it was so all-consuming in the moment, it was based on a complete fabrication of my own devising. And then even when I learned the new information, I realized that I had been in the wrong to begin with. I did not immediately shift to sorrow or shame. That, That anger, it lingered. It took time for me to come down from this charged emotion, even though I knew intellectually there was nothing to be angry about. And this is just a single story out of hundreds I could tell. The point of the story is this. Your emotions will lie to you. They will tell you things that are not true, and they will have you desiring things that are not good for you. Like that piece of cake that we all love. And so basing love on an emotional state will eventually leave you in a loveless place from time to time. And this state might persist for extended periods. It will cause you to hurt those around you because you put your faith in an emotion. You cannot trust your emotions to be the foundation for truth. Because that would mean that truth is just as fickle as your mood. And a truth that's fickle isn't really a truth at all. And so when we turn to the Bible to examine the kinds of love described there, we have a lot of work to do. Because in the Hebrew, there are at least four words that are translated as love from time to time. First off, there's ahava. This is the word that everybody pulls out when speaking of love. 
And ahava, it's, it's a mechanical word. It describes the attachment to one thing above all other things. As a magnet is attached to metal above all other substances. It's simply mechanical. Then there is chesed. Chesed is a type of love or loyalty to another based upon a vow or a commitment that you have made to that other. Then there's racham. Racham is a type of devotional love of the caregiver feels for the recipient of their care. It's the love of charity, of passing kindness down. And then there is chashak, which means to cling to something based on some quality of the thing that you desire to bring close. This is your lustful, passionate love in Hebrew. Each of these, they discover different ways that love can be experienced and expressed. Now, to further complicate this, when we turn to the New Testament and we explore the various Greek words that we simply translate as love, because, again, there are four at a minimum. The first off is eros. This is the passion of lovers as they desire each other. This is the love that we consider to be love today in the modern world. Then there's storge or storge. Uh, this is a familial bond with others of your kinship group. This is the love of brothers, of aunts, uncles, uh, cousins, nieces, nephews, so on and so forth. Then there is philos love. This is the love of friends or non-blood brothers for each other. Uh, it's commonly described as brotherly love. It's that type of love, but it's love expressed to someone who is not actually your blood brother. And then finally, there is the agape love, the unconditional love that we read of, of God for man. If you've been in a Christian church for any length of time, you've heard a teaching on agape love more than likely. And so when we turn to the Bible, we find that love is a complicated thing because the English language does a disservice to this ideal when we capture all of these ideas in that singular four-letter word, love. But as students of the Bible, we must seek to discover what kind of love is being spoken of when we see this word in our English Bibles. Now, we're going to take a shortcut for the sake of time. I'm going to make a claim that if you need it proved further, you can research it on your own time. When it comes to the relationship between God and man, love is not something that's to be fickle. Neither is it to be based on an emotion of any sort. This is the agape love that is unconditional. But that does not mean that it's based on nothing. It's a love that's based on something that our modern world discounts. And this week we catch a glimpse of it as we open this week's Parsha. Deuteronomy 10 verse 15. Hashem delighted only in your fathers to love them. He chose their seed after them, you above all peoples as it is today. Hashem loved them, and so he chose them. And there it is. Love is a choice. It is a decision that is made. It is based on something. As it's put in this verse, it was based on a desire that is, as it's translated in my translation. But this word has a meaning that's deeper than simply feeling or desire. According to Strong's lexicon, the word used here, chashak, bears the meaning of to cling to that or to join to in love, or to delight in. And as an antonym is the word chashak, which means to bear, or restrain, or to hold back, or to refuse. 
to accept something and draw it close as opposed to reject and to push it away. The word delight is used in my translation. It's an emotion word based in the English. But we see here that the word means to cling or to join to. So Hashem clung to your fathers to love them. Hashem made the choice to join himself with Israel. It's this that is meant by the word agape, or ahava, when used to speak of God's love for us. And I would contend that this is the same idea for the kind of love that we should have for him. And so when we read back in Deuteronomy 6 that we should love Hashem our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our resources, this is the idea that we should have. Not an emotionally charged passion for Hashem, but a conscious choice to join ourselves to Him. One that will last even if we go through a time of trial and testing. Even if we go through a time where we don't feel His love for us. Even if we go through a time when we don't feel love for Him. Because love for God is not a love of the moment or based on desire. It's a love that's based on a choice. And it's this choice that then leads to a vow. And this vow is a vow of allegiance to him. And it is this that Hashem asks of us in verse 12, to fear, to love, to serve him, and to guard his commands. This God who is the patron of the universe, he chose you from among all peoples. He has joined himself to you through a vow, and he loves you. And so now it's on you to return this love. And in verse 16, this means circumcising our hearts. Now, what does this phrase mean? It's one that appears in several places in Scripture. We'll see it once more before we finish the book of Deuteronomy, but the occurrences are not limited to this book. We see it in Jeremiah 4.4, 4, where it says, Circumcise yourselves unto Hashem, and take away the foreskin of your hearts, you men of Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath come forth like fire and burn, with none to quench it, because of the evil of your deeds. Romans 2, 28-29, For he is not a Jew who is so outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But a Jew is he who is so inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in spirit, not literally, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Obviously, this is not a literal circumcision like the circumcision of the flesh is. Paul says it explicitly. This is not a literal circumcision. We're not expected to go under the knife for heart surgery. Instead, we're to understand this phrase based on the corollary that is provided in verse 16 of this chapter of Deuteronomy. Do not harden your hearts anymore. And so circumcision of the heart is a softening of the heart. But what does that look like in practical terms if it's not heart surgery? And to discover this, we can look at physical circumcision and explore the circumstances surrounding the giving of this command and the theme attached to this act of the flesh. Back in Genesis 17, Avram is given the command of circumcision. And when we were in this chapter, we saw that at this point, Ishmael would have been considered a man. He was 13 years old. But who was Ishmael? Ishmael was the product of Abraham attempting with his flesh and with his human reasoning to bring about the promises of God. Instead, Genesis 17 reveals that the promised son was still future and that this promise was not to come about through human means. The Son of the Covenant was not going to be born out of human ability. 
It was not with his member that Abraham was going to father Isaac. And so the flesh of this place of the power of Abraham was symbolically cut off in order to recognize that it is Hashem that creates life and who fulfills the promises that he makes. And in this we find that it is humility that is connected to this act of circumcision. And so what does it mean to circumcise your heart, especially when we add in that the heart at this time, it was where thoughts were formed. It would be just as accurate to say circumcise your mind. Recognize circumcision of the heart in many ways is a mental process. Recognize you are not in charge. You are not your own God, and human logic and ability is not where your faith is found. God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so when he tells you something, you need to do it. Circumcision of the heart, it's an idiom that speaks to acting in humility in the face of God. Letting go of your pride and letting him lead and letting his ways guide your life. Philippians 3 3 says it this way, For we are the circumcision who are serving God in the Spirit and boasting of Messiah Yeshua, and do not trust in the flesh. Why is it that we should do this? Well, it's verse 17 here in Deuteronomy, because Hashem is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is King of kings, the one and only true ruler of all creation. He's the one who cares for the vulnerable classes. He is the one who cares for the widow, the orphan, and the poor. And you are to show your love for your neighbor. You are to show love to the foreigner. Yes, even for the gare. Because you were gare. And he showed you love and compassion when you were the vulnerable class. And what kind of love are you to show your neighbor? Well, if we turn to the Septuagint, it's agape love. This unconditional love that's simply based on a choice. This is how we are to love our neighbors as well as the friendly foreigner. Mark 12:31, and Yeshua answered them and said, The first of all of the commands is, Hear, O Israel, Hashem your God, Hashem is one, and you shall love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first command, and the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. You are to agapeo Hashem, your God. You are to agapeo your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Is it your brother who looks like you? Or might your neighbor look like a Samaritan who shows love for another? A ger who is friendly to your ways? and yet foreign to you. And so as we pick back up in verse 20, Hashem is to be everything to you. Fear him, for he is the great king who executes justice. Serve him, for he is the master of all things. Cling to him, for he is your husband who has chosen you and has vowed himself to you. And swear by his name because he is faithful to accomplish all that he says he will do. He is the one you praise because he is your patron who has given you every good gift. And he demonstrated all of this and brought you close when he brought you out of Egypt. And look at you now, a multitude like the stars of the heavens. Then in chapter 11, this continues and does so with a repeat. So love Hashem, your God. 
Now, when we spoke of the various kinds of love earlier, the love that is most often spoken of when speaking of God's love for man is the agape love, the unconditional love that he directs toward us. Now, when we turn to the Septuagint here and later in the chapter and in chapter 6, we discover that the Greek word that's used in these chapters to describe the love that we are to have for God is also agapeo. We are to love God with that same unconditional love that he loves us with, not based on a feeling, not based on an emotion, not even based on proof. We are to love him based on a choice, based on a vow that is unshakable. And then from verse 2 through 8, Moses speaks directly to those who are listening. He says, you saw all of this. You saw how God disciplined you. You saw his miraculous acts with your own eyes. You saw his judgments on Egypt and the sons of Reuben. And you don't want to be on the receiving end of this judgment. And so you should guard the commands of this covenant so that you are not destroyed as these others were. If you remain true and continue to serve Hashem, you will be able to take the land that is before you and you will be empowered to remain in the land for a long time. And then verse 10 through 12, it waxes eloquent about the beauty and the wonder of the land that they're entering, the gift that's being given to the people. Yet another act of grace towards this people who truly don't deserve it. And then it says, And if you remain faithful to God... God will remain faithful to you. You will receive rain. You will have bountiful harvests. But guard yourself, lest you be tempted to bow to other gods. And then in verse 18, as a closing bracket to the exploration of this first command, we read once again the admonitions that are contained in the Shema. Lay these devarim in your heart and in your soul. Bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. Not a command to build boxes and put written versions of these commands in them and then to tie them to your head and your hands while you pray. But again, a metaphor for think on these words and live these words out into the world around you. Follow them as if it's a carrot before the mule. This is the opposite of the mark of the beast. A mark that is on your hand and on your head that demonstrates who you really serve. And these words you shall teach them to your children, and you shall speak of them at all times. You shall meditate on them and discuss the wisdom that they contain. And you shall surround your dwelling with the words of God. And if you do all of this, you will be successful in the conquest that's been set before you. And so when we turn to the New Testament, as I've already demonstrated, the same kind of love is present. The unconditional love based on a choice and a vow. A love that is based in covenant. A love that's spoken of throughout all the New Testament. Romans 13, 8-10 as an example. Owe no one any matter except to love one another. For he who loves another has filled the Torah. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other command, it's summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the completion of the Torah. Paul says here in Romans, and he repeats the same idea in Galatians, the entirety of the Torah can be summed up in one word, love. 
And the entirety of the gospel can also be summed up in that same word. Because love is a thing that is from God, and it is through love that we are able to properly relate to God and to those around us. Now, when we speak of love, there is a modern ideal of love that is vitally essential to our practice of love towards others. It is our duty to tell others that we love them in ways that are meaningful to them. And so books are written and conferences are held describing the love languages and then identifying your own and the love languages of those around you. And the love languages that have been identified in human relationships include things like physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and giving of gifts. The five love languages that are present in our human relationships. And if you don't know the love languages of those closest to you, I recommend you learn them. Because it's only by speaking the language of the one that you love that you can actually demonstrate love for them. But there is a love language that's not included in this list of human relationships. The love language that God has, it's not here. Now sure, God loves spending quality time with us. He enjoys words of affirmation, which we call praise and worship. He expects acts of service to others to be accomplished in his name. He asks that we give gifts to him by giving to those who cannot care for themselves. And he likes physical touch, which we walk out through fellowship and community, coming in close contact with those around us. But there is a love language of God that is not on this list, one that is essential to any who would claim to love God. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you shall guard my commandments. Wait a minute. Isn't that what this Parsha declares over and over? What these last six chapters have been all about? This expansion of this first word of you shall love God first. I am Hadanai your God. It begins with love in chapter 6. It ends with love here in chapter 11. And throughout we read of the love that God has for Israel and the love that God asks for in return. And all throughout is this admonition to guard his commands. Translated as keep in many English translations, but in my opinion, the word keep in these places is a word that was chosen by people seeking to earn God's favor through the keeping of the commands. Because that is not what's asked here. We are to guard them. We are to be vigilant and protective of the commands. They are to be as something precious to us that we don't want to see destroyed. And so we are tasked not with keeping the commands, but with guarding the commands. Not with obeying the commands, but with hearkening to them, taking them to heart and engaging in this process of extrapolating them into our own lives. And that will look like keeping and obeying the commands, but that is not the basis of the command rote obedience or or checkbox keeping? No, rather vigilant watching over continually and hearkening to them and taking them to heart. In practice, it will look like keeping and obeying. But that's not where our focus should be. Our focus should be in the continual meditation on these words of wisdom that can guide our path. And it is this 
That is God's love language. It's how we demonstrate to him that we love him. Because he is a king, a lord, master, and our God. He has all honor, and it is our duty to return that to him by respecting what he has for us and acting in all submission and humbleness toward him. And likewise then turning that love outward to those around us, showing them his love and allowing his love to be so all-consuming that it flows through us to the world around us. And in this is the greatest part of the gospel, because faith, salvation, hope, there will come a time when these things will no longer be necessary, but love will never cease. Even when everything else has been accomplished, love will remain. And so it is incumbent upon us to work out love into the world even now. And it is God's love for us that leads us to him. But just as righteous acts being an outpouring of our being declared righteous by him, so too our love for others is to be the outpouring of his initial love for us. 1 John 4, 7 through 5, verse 4. Beloved ones, let us love one another because love is of God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his unique Son into the world in order that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be an atoning offering for our sins. Beloved ones, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God does stay in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we stay in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son, the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Yeshua is the Son of God, God stays in him and he in God, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who stays in love stays in God, and God in him. But this love has been perfected with us in order that we might have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear holds punishment, and he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one not loving his brother who he has seen, how is he able to love God whom he has not seen? And we have this command from him, that the one loving God should love his brother also. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one bringing forth also loves the one having been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God, and guard his commands. For this is the love of God, that we guard his commands, and his commands are not heavy. Because everyone having been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the overcoming that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our allegiance. God loves us, and so he grants us justification as an act of grace. 
And in response to this love for us and this gift that he extends toward us, we in turn declare allegiance to him and begin to act out our allegiance in righteousness and love. And in this, the gospel is fulfilled. In this, the Torah is fulfilled. Every part in place, every piece functioning as it should. And the greatest quality that we can have as we approach the world at large is love. This base quality should be our motivation. It should be the reason that we act. And when we can get to that place of love first, love towards God combined with love towards others, then we will have found the path of life as we seek life. So continue to Deresh Chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.